now that you do God's blessing, we can turn back together to the portion of Scripture which we read. We can take our text today from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. I want us really to study verses 1 to 3 together, but uh, let me just read from the beginning of verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. One of the great blessings and realities of the Christian life is that of adoption. In justification, you are made right with God. In sanctification, you are made like God. But in adoption, you are made a child of God. God becomes your father and you become a son of God or a, a daughter of God. And I want us today in the time that we have with a view to the table, the Lord's table tomorrow, I want us to look at some aspects of, of what adoption is, what this adoption in the Christian life, what it entails. And the first thing that I want us to consider together as we work our way through these verses is the wonder of adoption. There is wonder here. You can see it in John's very, very language. Uh, see what kind of love, or, or behold uh, what manner of love. Behold, he says, uh, stop what you're doing and see this amazing thing that, that God is doing, that he has done. Study this thing. Take time to, to look at this thing. Behold. Behold what? Well, behold what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God. What kind of love, or, or what manner of love? Literally, the word means, behold from what country this love has come. It's an unearthly love, it's a foreign love. There's something altogether different about this kind of love that God has for his people. It's the same word, actually, that that the disciples used, if you remember, when they were on the boat with Jesus, they thought that they were going to die. And Jesus is there asleep with his head in a pillow. And they wake him up and he gets up and, and he calls the wind and the sea to be silent. And the disciples say, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? They're amazed at this man. They wonder what where does this man come from? He's surely not, not just man. Is this not the God-man? They're amazed at, at what he's doing, at what he's able to do. Behold, what, ma what manner of man is this? Well, it's that kind of amazement that John, the Apostle John, is feeling here when he beholds and when he calls us, myself and yourselves, to behold the adopting love of God. Behold the manner of love that is what manner of love has been bestowed upon us, that has been given to us. Uh, it could be translated that has been lavished upon us. It's been poured out upon us. We are smothered by this love. It's loaded out onto us. It's given to us in immeasurable quantity. And that in itself is something to behold. It's something amazing. It's something otherworldly. But what is so amazing about it? What is so wonderful about this love? What is it that makes this love stand out compared to all other types of love? Well, is it not just this, that the love has been lavished 
upon us. That we should be called the children of God. That love is bestowed upon us to the extent that God sees fit. Indeed, God delights to adopt us as his own children. Adopting love, as you know, it's, it's remarkable in just about any situation. Adopting love is, is precious love. But what makes this love outstanding is the character of the adopted children. You see, when adoptive parents today, when they decide to adopt a child, they don't do it completely blindly. They're given information about that child. They have a choice then, after they're given the information, to proceed or to withdraw, to move forward with it or or to fall back from it. And they get this information in a document called a Child's Adoption and Permanence Report. Uh, It's shortened sometimes to a CAPR. And in this report, prospective parents, prospective adoptive parents, they're given information, information about the child, about his or her background, about the birth family. They're told why the child has perhaps been in care or why the child is being put up for adoption. They're told in this report about the health of the child, if there's any issues, about the child's development, about any difficulties he's had, about any education he's been put through, about any friends that he has or friends that he doesn't have. All of these things are put in this report and if the parents are still happy to move forward after having read this document, they will tell the the counsellor or the agency, whoever it might be, and the process will move forward. And so the child himself comes into it. He, He comes into it, his genes, his history, his character, any issues he has, his nationality, his health, his personality, his social status, all of these things come into adoption. And if the couple aren't happy with the child's profile, they simply ask for another profile. They move on. The question that I want to ask you today, and the question that I need to ask myself is just this, what do you think your CAPR would look like? What would your report be like? What does God see when he looks at you? Does he see in you an ideal candidate for adoption? Does he see in you a suitable son, a suitable daughter? Does your profile recommend itself to God? Does your report endear you to God? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. In every section of your report and mine, there are issues. You're a problem child. What kind of genes do you have? Well, you've got the genes, the corrupted genes of your father, Adam, don't you? Who sinned in the Garden of Eden. What kind of parents have you had? Well, you're off, if, you're, if you're off this world, unregenerate, you are off the fa- your father, the devil. What kind of upbringing then have you had? Well, you've been in the world and you've been off the world. What about your education? Well, you've been taught your tutor has been your own deceitful and wicked heart. What about your health? You're sick, aren't you? You're sick with a sin disease, with a heart disease. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. What about a criminal record? Do you have a criminal record? Well, you've sinned against heaven itself and against God. You're guilty before God. You have this sentence laid upon you. And God enters the adoption agency of this world. And what does he see? What does he see in you? Well, he sees one who doesn't deserve to be adopted into this family. Does he not? Is that not what he sees? 
more than that, he sees an enemy. He sees one who has sinned against him, and one who decides to be left in his sin. He sees a rebel. He sees an unrighteous one, who is one who is unholy and unfit, one who is defiled with sin. That's what God sees in the adoption agency of this world. He doesn't see the ideal candidate with a spotless record that anybody would want to adopt. No, what he sees is a sinner in the gutter, lame on both of his feet, covered in putrefying sores, dead in his sins. When God looks upon the sinner, when he looked upon you, when you were still in this world, he didn't see anything attractive about you. And should he not therefore have moved on, left you where you were, left you in the world, left you in your sins, is that not what he should have done? Yet in the gospel, we find that God's love compels him to adopt his people and to his family. It constrained him if you're in Christ today. His love constrained him to adopt you. This is what amazes John. And does it not amaze you today? Does it not cause you to wonder that God has ever adopted you into his family? That God's love is so deep that it stoops down to reach you where you are with all of your issues and takes you up into his family, the heavenly fam family. That God's love is so wide that it takes you with all of your issues and your shortcomings and failings and that he adopts you into his family. You see, when the Spirit shows you yourself, and that's of course part of the Spirit's work, when he begins to work in your life and when he continues to, to work in your life. He shows you more and more, not only of God and of Christ, but he shows you more and more of yourself. And when he does so, you can only, like the prodigal son, having come to himself, having come to his senses, you can only say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Isn't amazing the love of the father, the prodigal son? Should he not have thrown that spoiled little young man out of his house? Should he not have shown him the door? Had that boy not offended him? Had he not wished him dead? Had he not desired only his inheritance, only his money? Should the father then not have cursed him and thrown him out, sent him packing? Surely there's no room in the father's house. Surely there's no place in the father's family for such a son. And yet, what do we read? Well, we read that the father sees him afar off as if he'd been standing there looking and watching and waiting if he was going to come. And he sees him, and when he sees him coming over the hill, he has compassion on him, and he runs, and he falls on his neck, and he kisses him. And he calls to his servants. And what does he say? Does he say, take him away? Get him out of my sight? No, he says... Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. And bring here the fatted calf and let us kill it. Kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What love that the father of the prodigal had for him. And it's such fatherly love that we find here in this passage. It's such fatherly love that we find in the gospel. It's such fatherly love that you find in your own Christian experience. A love which comes over the mountains of your sins and provocations. 
A love which brings you into the family which you, had, you, which you had forfeited in Adam and in your own sin. Brings you back into the home that you had turned your back on in your rebellion against God. That's the wonder of adoption. That God the Father should do all that for you who are but a rebellious child. And it's made even more wonderful by the cost of it. Remember that you're just as your justification, your redemption, just as these things weren't free, neither was your adoption free. It was free for you, certainly, but it was costly to God. Because remember what we read, that when the fullness of time was come, what did God do when the fullness of time was come? Well, he sent forth his own son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive what? that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, it was love that was so great in the bosom of the Father that he gave his only begotten Son in whom he was well pleased. He gave him so that you might become a son. This isn't love in word only, but love which is indeed done in truth. It is a giving love. It is a charitable love. It had to be such. Behold then what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we, sinners such as we are, should be called the children of God. And so you have the wonder of adoption. But secondly, I want us to consider the privileges of adoption, the privileges which are yours today if you're indeed a child of God. Uh, The love of adoption is God's, but the privileges of adoption are ours. It is we who are called the children of God. Indeed, in verse 2, we read that now we are the children of God. And the emphasis here is on the present tense. This isn't something that you're called to be in the future. This is a present status that you have. You're a child of God. You sit there in the pew today, and you sit as an adopted child of God, as one who has God as your father. What's this all mean? What difference really does this make in your life on a practical level? What difference, difference does this make for your present? What difference does it make for your, for your future? Now, the language of adoption and the word adoption, it's the language of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, not the language of the Apostle John. John doesn't use the word uh, adoption. Now, they are referring to, to the same concept, but they're taking different approaches and different angles as they come to it. I want to spend a bit of time, although it's not perhaps, um, although we have to come out of the text to to look at it, I want to spend just a wee bit of time looking at Paul's view of adoption. Because for Paul, adoption is a legal action. It's a forensic act. It's a judicial change of status, of status in the eyes of God. With Paul, adoption doesn't change you inwardly. It's something that's done to you, not in you. It's something that's done for you and not with you. In justification, you are given a righteous status. In adoption, you're given the status of a son. Uh, this is also the case in, in natural adoption, in adoption today. The child becomes legally a part of the adoptive family. Now, he's not a child by blood, but on paper, the adopted child is as much a child as any other natural child in the family. 
and as such the adopted child in a family he has all the same rights and privileges which belong to the natural child he has a new name he has a new family he has a new rights he has new hopes he has new expectations he has a new inheritance these are the things which Paul really concentrates on when he speaks about adoption and so Christian friend this is a position that you find yourself in before God today your parentage has changed it's one of your privileges your parentage has changed God is your father now he wasn't before there is a sense in which you can say that God is the father of all but only a sense not in in the reality uh, of it God is your father and as such he cares for you he provides for you he loves you as his own according to his legal framework you are his own and so your role has changed your status is now that of a, a child you're part of a new family your name has changed you're now called a christian you are now a child of god your address has changed even your citizenship is in heaven you desire that better country and your elder brother has gone to prepare a place for you in that country in his and in your father's house you're no longer a child of the world who inherits the measly things of this world no as a legal son you have a legitimate entitlement to an inheritance that's why the apostle paul almost always uses when he's speaking about this he speaks about the adoption of sons um because in his day daughters didn't inherit it was sons which inherited that's why that, that's why he uses sons and not children as we have in, in john and so you in christ you become a legal heir an heir of god and a joint heir with christ you receive the holy spirit as part of this inheritance you and so you have access to the throne of grace with boldness you're enabled to cry at that throne abba father and so you are pitied you're protected you're provided for you're chastened by god as by a father and yet you're never cast off as an enemy you're sealed to the day of redemption inheriting all of the prophet promises as heirs of everlasting salvation what privileges you are given when you think of what you were when you think in many ways of what you are what privileges you are given as a son or as a daughter of god what an inheritance is yours one which is incorruptible and undefiled and that faded not away that is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of god through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and so justification is conceived of in in paul in terms of law but when you come to adoption although it's conceived of certainly in terms of law we can also conceive of it in terms of love and in justification the judge is pronouncing you just but in adoption the judge is pronouncing you as his child there's a difference here isn't it the judge is as it were having set you free he looks down into the dock to where you are and he says to you you're free to go you are now just you are innocent your record your slate has been cleared but i will not leave you fatherless i will not leave you as a orphan i will not leave you without comfort with me you will come i will be your father and you will be my son and you'll come to my house you'll come to live with me i'll adopt you into my family 
And like Mephibosheth of old, you will eat at my table continually. What is his shall be yours, as the father of the prodigal said to the elder son, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. And so he says that to you in your adoption. And so you have the wonder of adoption, and you have the privileges of adoption, which we see mostly in, in Paul. But thirdly, we, we see here the nature of adoption. And to see the nature of adoption, we have to really return to John's line of thinking. And now as we saw, Paul emphasised the son's change of status uh, through adoption, in that he becomes an heir. But John, on the other hand, what he emphasises isn't a change of status, as it were, um, or the privileges of adoption, but what he emphasises is the transformational aspect of adoption, and that through the new birth. He uses the word child, not sons. I know uh, some uh, versions of the Bible do translate this as sons, and it's not necessarily wrong, but it is a different word, a different Greek word from uh, what you have in, in Paul, for example. John uses the word child to stress the change of nature in the Christian when he is united to Christ, when he is born again. With John, you're a child not necessarily because of a judicial act, but you're a child because of regeneration. And what this is referring back to is your, your conversion. Um, of course, there's different words and ways in that which that word can be used. But when the Spirit first begins to indwell you. Um, in John chapter 1, we read that, that all that believe, that, that they receive Christ and that they believe on Christ. But why do they do it? Well, because they have been born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh or of the will of the will of man, but they have been born of God, born of God. And this is, as it were, taking it deeper, isn't it? Um, it's also not born of God. We read that in, in chapter 2 and verse 29. It's those who are born of God who are adopted. It's those who are born of the Spirit who enter God's family. You're born again as one born out of due time into God's family. You are born of God's Spirit, you're united to Christ, and as such in this union and in this new birth you partake of the divine nature. So you're not only a child by status, much more you're a child because of the new birth. You become a child by nature. A child by nature. This is John's great argument for much of his doctrine. This is, and his practice, this is a line of reasoning the logical line of reasoning that he uses to enforce his point. That you are a child of God by nature because you are born again. You're not what you once were when you were in this world. It's not just that your status has changed. Your very nature has changed. You now bear the image of your father. Because when God adopts, he also regenerates. He makes you his child and he gives you the nature of his child. And so you are a new creature. The old things have passed away all things are become new. Your will is new. Your heart is new. Your affections are new. Your desires are new. Your hopes are new. Why? Well, because there's a new principle implanted in you. A principle of sonship. As we saw in the Gallic last night, God himself is implanting himself in you. And so you have a new nature. The nature of a child. A child not of the devil anymore, but a child of God himself. A real child. And that, friend, is how you can live the Christian life. 
That is why you are what you are as a Christian. This is what explains the change, not just from the outside, but from the inside. The fact that God hasn't just done his work for you, but he's done it in you, and he's done it with you. He's caused you to be born again. He has renewed you, and he has given you not only the status of a child of God, but the nature of a child of God. And so you have these three things. You have the wonder of adoption, you have the privileges of adoption, and you have the uh, transformational aspect or the nature of adoption. But fourthly, I want and finally, I want us to see the implications of this adoption. John goes on, as you can see, to highlight some consequences uh, of the fact that you are a child of God. And the first of these is perhaps not what you would expect. The first of these is that the world does not know you. You see that in the first verse. Uh, do you not? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world doesn't understand what you have. As a child of God, you have the most privileged status and the most glorious nature in the entire world. But don't expect the world to respect you for it. Don't anticipate their acclaim. Um, the, word, the word world is used by John usually to refer to the unbelieving world, and especially to those who are opposed to God. This is how he uses it later on in chapter 5, when he says that we know that we are of God, of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. And because the world lies, with wicked, lies in wickedness, it will not respect your Christianity and it will not honour your gospel. This is part of what it is to be a child of God. There is reproach that comes with it. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. He says elsewhere, in the world, Jesus says, you shall have tribulation. Because you're nothing to the world. You don't count to the world. Generally, they will see you as deluded, as mistaken, as plain wrong. Now, I know, perhaps this isn't as apparent at the moment in our own island as, as it is in other places, as it is in the mainland of Scotland. If the, if, the, if the trajectory doesn't change, it soon will be apparent, if it isn't apparent to you already. Because the true Christian will always be made, as a child of God, to stand distinct in an evil world. The true Christian will always be marginalised. The world, the world will not understand your position, and eventually they will not tolerate your, uh, your position. That's what we see in Jesus Christ himself. That's what we see in the early church. That's what we see throughout the history of the church. That's why you have persecution even today throughout the world. Because the world will not tolerate Christianity. Why? Why do the world not understand? Why do they not see the glory of the gospel? Why do they not see where you are coming from? Well, the world doesn't know you um, because it didn't know him. It didn't know Jesus Look what John says to him, says about him in the beginning of his own gospel. That he was in the world and the world was made by him. He was its creator. And yet the world knew him not. Well, what about the Jews? What about the Hebrews? Well, we read too that he came unto his own and his own received him not. So you see, until the world will understand who Jesus is, 
uh, through the power of the Spirit, they're not going to understand you. They're not going to know you. For you are dead to the world, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And what I want to ask you is, do you know this experience? Do you know what it is to, to stand up for the truth, whether it be in your home, or in your workplace, or in your community, even in church? Do you know what it is to stand up for the truth and to be alienated because of it? To be marginalised because of the faith? Because in many ways, that, along with other things, is a mark of grace. The world doesn't know you, that you're not in friendship with the world. But the second implication that I want to note is that um, uh, the second implication of adoption, it refers to your future. Not to necessarily what you are just now, but to what you will be. We see this in verse 2, don't we? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him. As he is. Now, as I said, John refers to the fact that you are now sitting in the pew, a child of God. But in the future, this is going to take on a, a, a new dimension. It's going to come to a culmination, a completion. Uh, and this dimension, this culmination of Christian sonship, in many ways it's shrouded in mystery. But John is here throwing light on this mystery for us. Because he's telling us that when Christ comes for the second time, when this world will be burned up with fire, when we shall all come to stand uh, before his judgment seat, on that day when he shall appear again for the last time, then his people will see him. Now, this isn't simply referring to a physical seeing. Neither is it simply referring to a seeing by faith. It's referring to seeing Jesus as he is, in all of his heavenly glory and majesty, in all of his purity and all of his holiness. For now, the, the apostle say, the, the apostle Paul says elsewhere, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And that scene will change you. It will change you. You won't be the same after seeing Jesus in all of his glory, because you shall be like him. You see, just a sight of his glorified person is enough to make you Christ-like. Just a glimpse of his undefiled holiness is enough to make you perfect in holiness. This seeing, it's the final process by which God's children will be presented before him, holy and blameless, and without reproach in his sight, without spot and without blemish. The children of God on that day shall be changed. They shall be sanctified. All tragedy shall be swallowed up in glory. All defilement shall be covered in holiness. And all corruption shall put on in corruption. What's happening here in this holy glimpse then? Um, what's happening when God's children shall look upon their elder brother? Well, the image of God, which has been marred by the fall, it's still there, but it's marred by the fall. It is stamped upon them again. And in that stamping, they are conformed to the likeness of the Son. The image of God is restored, and we all, with open face beholding us in a glass, the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. We put on the new man, 
who is created in righteousness and through holiness. He shall change your vile body that is maybe fashioned like unto his glorious body. So that as we've borne the image of the earthly in this world, we shall in that world also bear the image of the heavenly. For you, friend, who know yourself, who are aware that you let your father down in ways in which you wish that you didn't, for you to whom sin is a grievance, to whom your inner corruption is a cause of sorrow in your experience, this is a wonderful truth, isn't it? It's a glorious promise. It's a magnificent reality. There's much hidden from us about what heaven will be like and about what we will be like in heaven. But we know this. We know that when we get there, we'll not only be with Christ, but we shall also be like Christ. And with the same grace that was used to make you to be a child of God, that same grace shall cause you to be conformed to Christ's own holy likeness. Not a wonderful thing for you to think about today, that though you're not what you would like to be, yet the day is coming when you shall be made perfect, when sin shall no longer mar your soul's experience and fellowship with Christ. And so we have these implications, but there's a final implication. And this implication is a challenge. And it's that, it's that which we read in verse 3, that we must purify ourselves. If we hope to be like Christ in the future, then we must try, we must try to purify ourselves in order to be like him in the present. Now this isn't saying that you are purifying yourself in order to get to heaven in order to be a child of God, but rather it's saying this, because you're on your way to heaven, and because you are a child of God, you will do this. You will purify yourself. It isn't a qualification of sonship. It's a fruit of sonship. As we read in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see, Paul isn't simply writing a theological treatise here. This isn't ivory tower theology. And he's telling us about our present sonship, that we might grow in present holiness. He's telling us to behold God's adopting love so that we might be obedient and pure. John here is encouraging moral purity. The purifying of the heart which affects the way that we live. How do we do it? How do we do that? Well, Peter says this. He says that we purify our souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit. Obeying the truth through the Spirit. Leaning on the Spirit and holding to the Word of God. That's what he says. Christ is coming again, John is saying. He's coming again as a judge to judge the world, to purify his people fully. And in response to that great truth, we must be purifying ourselves. We must be avoiding sin. We must be pursuing righteousness. We must be abiding in him so that when he shall appear, we might have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. Will you have confidence in that day? Will you be ashamed when he comes, the kind of life that you've lived, the way in which you've neglected the means that he's left for you, the way in which you've trampled his law under your feet, will you be ashamed or will you have confidence? If the purification process hasn't begun 
when you arrive in this world, then Christ will not complete it when he comes again. There's nothing there for him to complete. But if you do have this hope in you, the hope of adoption, the knowledge and experience of what it is to be a child of God, if you trust that you're a child of God, then you will be putting your sins to death. There will be progression in your Christian life. You'll be growing more and more like your Savior, even in this world. You see, children are like their parents, as you know, often in looks and, and in personality. But you know, adopted children can become like their parents too. They can begin to, to act like them, even in some strange ways, to look like them. You see them using the same expressions, the same kind of speech, the same actions, the same reactions. Well, that's how a child of God is. He becomes like his father and he becomes like his brother. He wants to follow his law. He wants to speak his word. He wants to hate and to love as Christ hated and as Christ loved. He wants to use Jesus' example as his great guide for life. He wants to follow in his footsteps. He wants to despise sin as Christ despised it. He wants to love righteousness as Christ loved it. Do you find this desire in your own soul's experience? That's a question for you. I'm not asking if you're living a perfect life. I know that you aren't. But I'm asking if you find this desire in your heart to shun sin and to pursue righteousness. Is there this striving within you to live a pure life? There should be. There should be a burning seal for holiness. A greater desire for greater conformity to Christ's likeness. Because if we say that we are God's sons and God's daughters, then this is how we prove it. This is how we must prove it. By purifying ourselves from this world and its sin, even as he is pure. As I said, that's not to say that the child of God is perfect or without sin. The fact that you're even told to purify yourself shows that, that there is impurity there. It points to uncleanness within you. And that, friend, know this, that will remain. It will be part of your continual experience. You will be impure. If it were not so, then you'd already be like Christ. There will be nothing left for him to do. So as you come to the Lord's table tomorrow, you come not as a perfect Christian, not as one who has fully overcome the world with your faith, not as one who hasn't, who no longer struggles with sin because your repentance is so perfect. No, you come as a sinful, stumbling, impure, undeserving child. And though you're not as holy as you one day hope to be, yet you're as much a child of God as you'll ever be. And so you come as an impure son, an impure daughter, continually trying to purify yourself with the Spirit's help. But you come knowing that the day comes when your blemishes will be covered, when your impurities will be purified, when you see Christ as he is, and when you shall be like him, because God has adopted you into his family. Let me just conclude then with this. Statistics tell us that up to 9% of adoptions in the UK fail because the, the children are perhaps not what their parents expected them to be. They, they have health issues, they have learning difficulties, they are badly behaved, they can be abusive, and their parents can't cope, they can't manage them. 
and so they they terminate the the adoption process and they give their children back into care which actually uh, I, I read of an instance in England not that long ago where one family or one couple sued the council because the child which they got wasn't what they expected you might wonder a child of God if God will put up with you if he'll cope with you if he will abide your sins but if God has adopted you into his family that adoption will never fail he has a perfect record. He's never failed as a father. And he which has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. He will not leave you as an orphan. He will not forsake you as a son. But he will care for you. He will protect you. He will lead you. He will guide you even as a father. Because you are his child. And he is your father. And he loves you with that fatherly love. With a perfect love. With a full love. And this is your great confidence today as you look ahead to the Lord's table tomorrow. That you're really coming to a family meal. That you're coming to sit at the Father's table. That you're coming with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you're coming to remember and to proclaim the death of your elder brother until he come again. Come then, friends. Come in the full confidence that you are not what you once were in this world, but that you have been adopted and that you are now a child of God by grace. And so this is your place to be where Christ is, to be where the family of God is, to be where the Father would have you to be. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and ever-blessed God, we give thanks to thee for the great love which has been bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. O oh, help us then to live as loyal sons and daughters, giving all the glory and praise uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father, who is so gracious, so kind, so loving. Be with us then, Lord, and undertake for us. Leave us not to ourselves. Bless us as we uh, continue to prepare for the Lord's Supper tomorrow. Meet with us here in this place. Grant that this would be a feast day for our souls. Glorify thy name and forgive for sin for Christ's sake. Amen. Let us then bring our worship to a conclusion by singing to God's praise in Psalm 45. Psalm 45 and the second version of the short Lutheran version, and that's on page 270. Reading from verse 13. The daughter of the king, all glorious is within, and with embroideries of gold her garments wrought have been. She cometh to the king in robes with needle wrought, the virgins that to follow her shall unto thee be brought. They shall be brought with joy and mirth on every side, into the palace of the king, and there they shall abide. In thy father's stead thy children thou mayest take, and in all places of the earth them noble princes make. I will show forth thy name to generations all, therefore the people evermore to thee give praises shall.
verses 13 to 17, Psalm 45, to God's praise, the daughter of the king, all glorious is within.